We'll have the sermon from John chapter 6 as we continue a series. Um, Tom Brown's doing most of that preaching. I had a chance a few weeks ago to speak from John 1, 1 to 18. Last year, I love preaching from John. Last year I did one sermon from John 3, another one from John 15, another one from John 14. But today is John 6, so if you open your Bible to that chapter, that's where we'll be. We won't wander. While you're doing that, though, I will ask for your prayers for just a few more things coming up. Tom Brown has mentioned the leadership conference. This is very important for building unity and connection, if nothing else. The following Sunday, the 22nd, uh, we have our teaching day here, and I, we, we've made announcements in all nine Atlanta family churches, but if you know people and you invite them, I think they're more likely to come, and friends will be welcome to come too. It's on Revelation and the end of the world. If someone has no biblical background, it's a lot of stuff. If they're familiar with the Bible, I think they'll fit in very well. I ask for your prayers as I go to Mexicali, Mexicali um, later this month. Uh, AIM will be meeting in San Diego, then London, then Los Angeles, then Athens. So it's a lot of um, biblical teaching. And then the, the International Teachers Seminar, you're all invited to it. I think you'd actually get a kick out of it. It's on your seat, like every third seat or so in most of the auditorium. And then finally, I've got a four-nation trip to West Africa. What I'm asking you to do is pray for me to depend on Christ as I go, and I'll be praying for you for sure. Are you in John 6? Okay. Uh, long chapter. Only a small part of it can we really analyze for reasons that I think are obvious. The Passover was near. We see that in verse 4. The Passover, verse 4, is a key event in John. In fact, in John, you see Passover in chapter 2, chapter 6, chapter 12, 13. So we have several Passovers, whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke are structured around just a single Passover. So the, the, the whole arrangement of John is very different, much more important here. How does Passover begin? Well, it begins with what's called the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Now, what element do you think is... Foremost in the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, it is bread. And what is it that Jesus says repeatedly in John chapter 6? Not just in verse 35, but in many places. He says, I am the bread. I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread that came down from heaven. So he's identifying himself with Passover. Paul does this in 1 Corinthians 5. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. And he's not talking about Passover. He's talking about celebrating the feast through our Christian community. So Jesus is the bread. That's very significant. He, after this, feeds the 5,000. Now, where else do we read about bread being miraculously multiplied and people being fed? Well, that's true. It's in Luke also. Yes, and it's in Mark. And Matthew, it's in all four Gospels. It is in Exodus, although that's not because of something humans did. They just got up the next morning, and there was the manna all over the ground. Elijah, in the book of Kings, Elijah feeds the 100. Jesus' miracle is 50 times as impressive. <laughs> and it, although this is interesting, we don't have time to explore it today. But people really like his miracle. They like that feeding the 5,000, but they take it the wrong way. 
And in verse 15, they try to influence him, I think really to use him for their own agenda. They say, let's get this boy into politics. And Jesus turns tail and runs for the hills. He says, that's not my way. I'm not trying to slam politicians. I'm saying his way, they get slammed plenty. You need to pray for them. Jesus' way was not to try to bring about righteousness on earth through government. It was through changing the world soul by soul and silently. They want him (laughs) into politics. There's a lesson here, one we don't normally hear in church, maybe another time. We don't have time to explore it right now. What happens next in the chapter is we give the overview, building up. The disciples row across the lake to Capernaum. See, why don't they just walk around? It's only a small lake. I think it theoretically would be quicker to row across the, you know, cut the corner off. But not when the wind and waves are against you. How many of you can row? Can you row well? I don't mean like going in a circle, but really rowing. <laughs> Canoeing, paddling is, when I was in the Boy Scouts, I learned paddling pretty quickly. I learned paddling earlier in my upbringing, but that was a different kind of paddling. <laughs> but I found rowing much more challenging. <laughs> but here they are, the disciples on the boat, and Jesus, <laughs> he walks on the water. That's got to be one of the most memorable miracles. I once dreamt that I did that. I had a dream that I was in Russia before the fall of communism, walking on water. This is right before KGB caught me. But it was the coolest dream to actually be walking on water. I've tried it a few times. Some of you have to, be honest. You said, God, I know it's not the age of miracles, but oh, I didn't think so. Okay. I didn't really think you'd answer that. But in your heart, like me, you like that miracle. <laughs> in another gospel, Jesus calms the storm. He has control over the storm, the elements. He has control over everything. There's no problem you face, physical, mental, medical, emotional, psychological, financial, relational. There's no problem you or I face that Jesus can't handle. What's overwhelming for us is phenomenally simple for God in the flesh, for Jesus Christ. What an important lesson. But we don't have time to explore that one today either. We see in verse 26 that Jesus challenges their motives because he's going for the heart. Why were they so excited about the bread? You know why? Free food? Cool! (laughs) Do another one. They had a physical motivation. Jesus wants them to have a spiritual motivation. Don't work for the bread that perishes. Work for the bread that I give you. What bread is that? Just a moment, we'll talk about that. Throughout the interaction in the next few paragraphs, he continues to challenge them. They push back. He pushes back even more. They keep going, and from some viewpoint, it didn't really go very well. But we don't have time to explore this today. Though we do have time to stop at verses 58 and 59, as he's concluding this very interactive and challenging dialogue. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. What is the comparison? The manna that God provided the Israelites in the desert 
Exodus chapter 16 is being compared to Jesus. Now, what were the rules for manna? You had to personally collect it. Oh, you could collect it for your household. But you went on every morning. What happened if you waited till the afternoon? It, wasn't, it would kind of melt. But every day, God would give it to them. And so that they could obey the Sabbath, on Friday, he gave them a double portion. So that on Saturday, which is kind of the middle of the Sabbath, they had... So every single day they had manna, but they had to go out and collect it. So God provides. This is not the Lord helps those who help themselves. Hand over your wallet. No, this is not that. But this is depending on God on a daily basis. And Jesus identifies himself with the bread. Whoa. We start to realize why this went so difficultly. Because he's talking about daily dependence on himself. And although the majority of the crowd don't really like this, I think they're starting to get it. Now, it would have been a lot easier for Jesus to tell them, go to church once a week, but you don't need to think about me any other day. Just go once a week. No one's perfect. Go behind that curtain and tell a friend all the things you did. Be a decent citizen, and you're, you're a shoe-in. You'll make it at the last day. He didn't say that. He could have said, just say a daily prayer, or read one paragraph from a daily devotional book, like Daily Bread. And don't even think about me the rest of the day. If you just put in one minute, that's plenty. I know you're very busy. Thank you so much for fitting me into your very busy and important schedule. But he didn't say that. Though it reminds me of Jeremiah 2.32, one of my favorite Old Testament verses, Jeremiah 2.32. He could have said, feel free to adapt my teachings so that they don't cramp your style. Take what you like from the Word of God and sprinkle in whatever else appeals to you from other religions and philosophies. Why, my friends, the Buddha spoke about 500 years ago, 500 B.C., take some of his teachings Add in some of the new mystery religions from Syria and Egypt. Mix in the latest philosophy. And your friends will think you are truly sophisticated. But he didn't say that. Because Jesus actually wants it all. He doesn't just want five minutes a day, one day a week. He wants one lifetime per lifetime. Or whatever we have remaining. And we never know. As people often say, he's Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. This message, verse 59, he was delivering in the synagogue in Capernaum. Capernaum, the village of Nahum, Nahum, the prophet, which is still there today, been well excavated. In fact, that very synagogue has survived. Not all of it, but the most important part, the foundation. The, the, the walls, once you get about this high off the ground, from here up, it's, it's much more modern. It was, it's from the 300s. But below that is the first century level. And you can go there. It's not that big, by the way. Far smaller than this room. And that helps you understand when the majority are about to walk away from him. It wasn't thousands who walked away. Because the synagogue can only hold a couple hundred. Our text today is verses 60 to 70. On hearing it, and, and this is... Everything we've been saying here, the challenge that I'm the bread of life, they resist. He 
keeps trying to explain, you've got to depend on me, on hearing it. Many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Or who can listen to it? And listening and accepting are not really that different, are they? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Are you offended? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? He's referring to what will be happening in a couple of years when he's executed, but then he resurrects, and then he ascends to where he was before, heaven. How will you think about my words at that time? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve, yet? And we'll stop right there. It's the same lesson. Our need to depend on the Lord. Notice this somewhat curious verse. Verse 63. For many years, as in uh, 25 years or more, I, I didn't understand what that had to do. I mean, I liked verse 61. Does this offend you? I liked verse 66. Something about that got me fired up. Probably more when I was younger than now. <laughs> but 61 to 65, I didn't really understand it. What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? Okay, there's going to be a time where everything, every objection will be put into perspective. But he says in 63, the Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. What, what, what is this, the Spirit and the flesh? Well, in the Bible, what does the flesh normally stand for? What does it mean? The flesh. The flesh is humanism. The flesh is our natural tendency to try to do things on our own strength. The spirit means relying on God. That's very simple, and you can explore that in many books of the Bible. The two I would most recommend if you want to save time are Galatians and Romans. But it's all about God. It's not about us. Flesh, human effort, versus spirit. Accepting from God what he will give us. People start walking away. 666. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Why? Why would you not want to be with Jesus? Wouldn't anyone today who, who met Jesus and heard Jesus want to follow him? 
If only Jesus could be here, wouldn't every crowd be won over just like that? Wouldn't all of our problems go away? Our relationship bumps. No one would be missing church services. No one would put too much time in at the job. You really think so? Unless you think that his first century coming was a, a practice, a botched rehearsal. When Jesus came in the first century, what happened? Did the majority of people say, we're with you? Even for Jesus Christ, the majority were not. Why do people start leaving? Well, I think this principle of making Jesus the bread of life for us, the one we depend on every day throughout the day, this principle is very hard for a worldly person to understand. Just, it's hard to get. Oh, it's not an intellectual issue. In early centuries, do you know one of the, the charges they often brought against the Christians? Well, there, there are a lot of charges. <laughs> because they practiced kind of a closed-door communion, and sometimes they called those love feasts, and they practiced a holy kiss, and everyone was your brother or sister. They, they said that they're having incestual orgies. That was in the media. Of course, nothing could be farther from the truth. But another thing that they accused the early Christians of, and you can read this in the, in the sources in the 2nd, 3rd century, 4th century, they, they accused the Christians of cannibalism. They said that they would eat babies. They would sacrifice babies and distribute the baby so that the congregation could eat the baby. Where would they get that from? You know, usually there's a small grain of truth in these rumors. Well, Jesus is God's son. His flesh, his blood are represented in the communion, wine and bread. So they were slandered as saying you practice cannibalism and orgies. You'd think it'd be pretty easy to, 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 to rise above those accusations. It would have been enjoyable to live back then and say, that's crazy, come and see. But it's very hard for a worldly person to get it. And unless we open our eyes and minds, we won't understand it either. We won't understand the deep truths of the Bible. Deep not meaning sophisticated, deep meaning those which cause us to reach into the very depths of our soul that cannot be followed except from the heart, not just the mind, as important as that is. It's princ the principle is hard for a worldly person to understand. It's hard also for all of us anyway, to trust in the invisible God. Where is God? Jesus promised in Matthew 18 that where two or three are gathered, he's there. So is he here today? You think so? But where is he? Well, he's in our relations with each other. He's in our answered prayers. He's in the transformed lives. He's in those who are coming to Christ. He's in and we see this, it's not just an inference, it's palpable. I mean, you can, you can feel that, sense it, touch it. But God is invisible. And for all of us, it's so much easier to trust in human effort, money, and quick results, which all seem at times so much more real than God. Be honest, come on. I'm not saying you're not Christian, but at times, don't those things feel a little bit more real? We have a bill sitting on your desk. Wow, that's, there's some reality there. <laughs> If I pray later in the day, 
Well, yeah, okay, to the invisible God, but I better deal this bill. So easy. That's why we need constant reminders. That's why the early church practiced weekly communion. That tells you something about those groups who say, well, that's a little bit too inconveniencing. We wouldn't want, wouldn't want to cramp anyone's style. We'll just offer it once a quarter. Or once a year, in some places. And then we see in verse 66, Jesus is not a politician. <laughs> Can you see that? <laughs> he lets them go. He doesn't say, oh, no, there's been a great misunderstanding. Uh, you misunderstood. I, I was using an abbreviation in that text message. I didn't mean this or that. No, he doesn't backpedal. There's nothing to backpedal on. He phrased it just right the first time. It was correct the first time, and it was delivered in the right balance the first time. No politician. He lets them go. Maybe they'll come back later, but even if they do, there'll be no negotiating because the gospel never goes on sale. You say, ooh, this is a little challenging. I'll visit this church in a few weeks. Maybe... Maybe the gospel will be discounted. <laughs> no, <laughs> it won't be discounted. In fact, it'll be worse in a way. It's really the same. It's your perception because you'll say, oh my goodness, they're not changing it. We have no right to change it. What we need to do is learn how to depend on Jesus as our manna, as our daily bread. Gospel never goes on sale. Hey, did you notice all the questions in this passage? It's full of questions. Uh, who can accept it? Verse 60. Does this offend you? 61. Uh, you don't want to leave too, do you? 67. Lord, to whom shall we go? 68. Have I not chosen you? 70. What about these questions? Well, the first one. <laughs> do we find Jesus' teachings hard? Who can accept it? Now, I think that probably if we were trying to develop this idea, we, we would ask the question, which ones do we find hard? Well, when, when you're not allowed to do this and this, you have to stop doing this, you have, you have to do this, this is... We tend to think of those teachings, specific teachings. However, none of those is actually mentioned in John 6. It's not like, oh, we, we skipped over verse 38. Well, that's another bread of life passage, isn't it? Verse 38b that said, and here are nine things you have to repent of. He doesn't actually get specific. So what was it? They don't seem to be reacting to Jesus giving a very specific sin that they have to repent of. But what was mentioned in this whole passage? What was it that, that led up to this reaction in verse 60 and this defection in verse 66? Well, it was his constantly saying, you've got to depend on me. I've got to be at the center of your life. I don't want leftovers. I think they're reacting to the big idea of relying on Jesus instead of on the arm of flesh. And the longer I'm a Christian, the more I am prone to think that the biggest challenge is for me to accept this truth, to have the attitude of John the Baptist back in chapter 3, verse 30, where he says, he must become greater, I must become lesser. That just hits me. It's self that needs to be died to, not just specific sin. In fact, if we're willing to die to self, in general, those specific sins will disappear or be easier to handle. But at the root, the Bible says, it's not, well, you violated a law of God, therefore... Well, 
yes, but at the root itself. It's our determination to have personal autonomy. I want to be on the throne of my life. I want to be on the throne. Jesus could sit next to me sometime, but there's only so much space, and we live in the real world. Second question, can we accept Jesus' teaching? Good question. And I'd say that if we, quote, get it, if we have taken steps to ensure that we are depending on him daily, we probably get it. But do we hear, do we accept his teaching? And again, just to say, well, I've been a member X years, that, that, that's not an answer. <laughs> you, can, you can come to the brink of utter ruin in the midst of the assembly. Proverbs 5.14. You could be there early and leave late and come to every service and optional activity. Still be at the brink of utter ruin. So can we accept his teaching? Third question, do you want to leave? I'm afraid many people hear the word leave or read it. That, oh, you mean leave the church? I don't think that's what he meant when he said you want to leave. Now, obviously, they would be walking away from the fellowship of those who had committed themselves to hang in there, even when it was tough. But I think this idea of leave, leave the church has been filtered through the lens of our experience. But it's so much bigger than that. Leaving Jesus means returning to a life of depending on self. Returning to the shadows, to the distractions, the dishonesty, the dissembling, the disingenuousness, the disappointment, and the distance from God. The 21 chapters of John's Gospel give us at least 21 reasons why we shouldn't leave. We'll go through all of them right now. No, we won't. <laughs> but they do give us reason to see why there is no other place to go. Chapter 1, Nathaniel could have gone back to his skepticism. What? Could anything good come out of Nazareth? Chapter 2, the 12 could have said, wait, was it really wine? He maybe it, the order, maybe we're getting confused. After all, we did have a, probably one glass more than we should have. I mean, they could have gone back in their understanding. Nicodemus came at night, remember? Chapter 3, he could have gone back to the Pharisees and their version of God's truth, and he could have just decided to blend in. I'll maximize my influence by blending in and never saying a word. It's hard to see how that maximizes your influence if you never say a word. Chapter 4, the Samaritan woman could have gone back to her empty life and her pointless, was it abusive, relationships with men. She could have gone back. The invalid could have gone back, chapter 5, back to Bethesda, laying around the five pools, lamenting the 38 years he had wasted. Yeah, technically I'm healed, but I'm just going to need a few years to get over the 38 years I don't feel good about. Was it 38 years? Or am I getting that wrong? Acts 3 has a guy who was lame about the same length of time. And so forth. In, in virtually every chapter, we find people who, who are confronted with the truth. They change. Their lives change, or they change their viewpoint, what they understand, and they, they could go back. They could go back. But that brings us to the fourth question. Where would you go? Verse 68. Where would you go? Where would we go? If we left Jesus, we go to a man-made religion? Go back to our old ways of thinking? And then in verse 70, Jesus replied, look at this, this is a little disturbing, the undertone, and I don't want to talk about Judas and predestination, that's way outside the uh, theological or chronological frame of today's sermon. But look what he asks, 
Have I not chosen you, the twelve? That's the last question in the chapter. Have I not chosen you? Yes, he has. He's chosen you. You're chosen. You hear the call. You respond. Then that makes you chosen. That concept is in Luke 5.32. It's also at the very end of 2 Thessalonians 2. You hear the call. If you say yes, then you're automatically chosen. If you say no, then you're not chosen. Right? It's based on your own decision. So yes, he has chosen us, but we must continue to choose him. Because he doesn't force us. Again, what were those questions? Do we find Jesus' teachings hard? Can we accept them? Do we ever want to leave? If we did, where would we go? And last, hasn't Jesus chosen us? I end the message with a hymn, one that I love, though I've not sung it in almost 30 years, so I don't remember the tune. (laughs) So I'll make one up. No, I'm just going to read it. I'm going to read it, okay? Please, try to let these words in. Oh, the bitter pain and sorrow that a time could ever be when I proudly said to Jesus, all of self and none of thee. Yet he found me. I beheld him bleeding on the accursed tree. And my wistful heart said faintly, some of self and some of thee. Day by day, his tender mercy, healing, helping, full and free, brought me lower while I whispered, less of self and more of thee. Higher than the highest heaven, deeper than the deepest sea, Lord, thy love at last has conquered none of self and all of thee. None of self and all of thee. None of self and all of thee. Lord, thy love at last has conquered none of self and all of thee.